Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, we read, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Lord Jesus has been speaking about giving in verses 1 through 4, praying in verses 5 through 15, fasting in verses 16 through 18, These have been called the spiritual disciplines. And now he's going to speak to us about treasures in verses 19 through 24. Treasures fall into two categories. Secure in verses 20 and 21. And insecure in verses 19, verses 22 through 24. They also can be described as corruptible. And incorruptible in verses 20 and 21. Jesus links what we value to what we are. Where your treasure lies, he says, so lies your heart. What you value speaks volumes about you. Years ago, the Great Tombs of China exhibit came to Denver. Mary and I had an opportunity to go and see it. I love historical artifacts. The Emperor Qin, who was the first great monarch of China, united a fragmented China after 500 years of strife and bloodletting and division. He assumed total control and ownership of what would become the United Kingdom of China. The Emperor Qin upon uniting the kingdom, then embarked on a search for eternal life. He believed as the greatest human being who ever lived, at least that's what he thought in his own mind, that he deserved to have eternal life in this world. And so he commissioned the scientists of his day, the wise men of his day, to create a potion or an elixir of life which would keep him alive forever. And his physicians gave him mercury pills surrounded with other chemical compounds. What do you think happened? Take a good guess. He died is the right guess. He never found the potion. He never found the elixir of life. And as you might imagine, the brochure, when we went to the museum, read, quote, the emperors of China spent their lives preparing for their deaths. And since they had grown accustomed to the good life, they commissioned talented craftsmen to create elaborate and ornate objects to keep them in the lap of luxury even as they passed on. Now, the Emperor Chen believed with all of his heart that you can take it with you. He had 8,000 life-sized statues made of the Imperial Guard, and he had them buried with him, which is a far cry better than some ancient rulers who would basically order their household executed, including their children and including their servants because they believed with all of their hearts that the wife and the children and the servants would accompany them into the next world. But what it proves is the saying that I know that all of you have heard at one time or another. 
is true. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You really can't take it with you. Some people think that you can take it with you. A rich man learned that he was about to die in a few days, and so he called three friends, a doctor, a lawyer, and a preacher. And he said, the the preachers told me that I've only got a few days to live and that I can't take it with you, but I believe that I found a way to do just that. He said, I've prepared three satchels, and in those three satchels, I've placed $100,000, and when I die, I want you to walk by my casket. I want you to drop the satchel in my grave. A short time later, the three men attended the man's funeral, and the preacher said, I have a confession to make. We really needed to pay down the debt in the church, and so I kept $20,000, and I put $80,000 in the grave. And the doctor said, I, too, have to confess to you that I took $50,000 to apply to a new clinic to help the poor downtown, and I only dropped $50,000 into the grave. And the lawyer said, I can't believe it. I'm ashamed of you. I'm shocked by what you've done. But I did exactly what Bill asked. My conscience is clear. I picked up your satchel and his satchel and and kept mine, and I dropped a check in for $300,000. It's all about perspective. How you see the world in which you live. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus invites us to take a peek. Look what it says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. One of the things that you should note right from the start about what has just been said is that riches really do exist. There are two kinds of riches in verses 19 and 20. There are two kinds of hearts in verses 21 and 23. There's two kinds of masters in verses 24. In the ancient world, fashions rarely changed. In the first century where Jesus is speaking, a person who was well-to-do would have had two inner garments and they would have had Two outer garments. Clothing was very, very expensive. Rich people would sometimes pile clothes on top of each other. They would hoard bits of silver and bronze and gold. They would hoard currency. And since the Jews understood the phrase, treasures in heaven... They would also understand treasures on the earth. It's what human beings value. The rabbis taught, quote, the deeds of kindness which a man did upon the earth would become treasure in heaven, unquote. The rabbis even told the story of a very famous king. His name was Manabaz II, and he was the king of a, of a province called Adiabane. Adiaban was a province that would have been located north of Damascus in Syria as you're making your way towards what was ancient Armenia and the ancient kingdom of Pontus. There was a principality there. And this particular king converted to Judaism. And during a time of profound famine, he took the family treasury and and the national treasures and he gave them to the poor. Manabaz related how... His fathers had stored up treasures on the earth, but he desired treasures in heaven. Josephus records, quote, My fathers gathered treasures for below. I've gathered treasures for above. My fathers gathered treasures which bear no interest. I've gathered treasures which bear interest. My fathers gathered treasures in this world. I've gathered treasures For the world to come, unquote. Jesus is in effect saying, what you keep, you lose. And what you give away becomes a permanent possession. 
And by the way, this was the reading, the adoption, and the application that the early church gave to this, to this passage. They came and then they cared for the sick and the poor and the helpless and the hopeless. They gave out of their material wealth to minister to the poor people. This last week I had an author on my radio program. Her name is Lynn Gentry and she's written a series of books called The Carthage Chronicles. It's, it's a piece of historical fiction, but she, she has her story located in the middle of the third century, which makes it 250 AD. And she talks about the, the, the growth of the Roman Empire and then the collapse of the Roman Empire and the growth of Christianity and the persecutions that emerged. There was uh, an emperor named Trajan Decius who ruled from 249 to 251 and he desperately wanted to hold on to Roman tradition, Roman virtue, and Roman culture. And so he embarked on a series of profound persecutions. He killed the bishop of Rome. And he ordered that the church be broken into and that its treasures seized. And so when the Roman soldiers came to the church, they demanded from one Laurentius, who was the deacon of the church at that time, they said, show me your treasure. And Laurentius said, could you please give me a day and we'll gather the treasure for you. And so 24 hours later, they brought them into the sanctuary and there was the elderly and the poor and the lame and the blind and the sick and the orphans. And Laurentius pointed to them and says, this, sir, is our treasure. These were the days when the church really believed that what you kept, you lost. And what you gave away became your permanent possession. My friend John Corson writes about this passage. He says, giving is not God's way to raise cash. It's God's way to raise kids. Over time, I give. I'm giving part of my stinginess and I'm giving away my selfishness. God doesn't need my money, but I need to give it. The Lord wants with all my heart, not my money, but my life. And my affection. He knows that wherever my treasure is, that's where my heart will be. And in verse 20, look what Jesus says. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Think about what has been said. There is something that we value here. And there is something valuable there. That's the point that he's making. He's asking us to ask the question, where are you invested? Are you invested in gold or silver? Are you, are you trying to corner the uranium market? Is, is it the stock market? Do your hopes and your fears rise on fall on the international markets? What about real estate? The only place that you're going to occupy, even on a temporary basis, is a cemetery plot. And if you believe the Bible and you believe Jesus, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, your body's going to be resurrected, even from that piece of dirt. Are you heavily leveraged in heaven? Have you been making deposits in your heavenly account? And so Jesus invites us to lay up our treasures in an unbreakable bank. Remember what he's pointed out. Earthly riches are subject to decay and corruption. Within everything in the material world in which you see is the powerful, not just possibility, but reality that the second law of thermodynamics is going to take place. Things that are organized are going to become disorganized. Things that exist in this world will cease to exist. Everything material, everything tangible, fungible, 
has within it a sense of insecurity and temporality, if it can be stolen, if it can be eaten, if it can be destroyed, then it can't last. I have a friend who collects coins. He had a million dollars worth of coins and someone broke into his um, hotel room and stole it. It was gone. I have another friend who spent six, count it, six million dollars on 26 cents. He bought a penny and he paid $3 million for this penny. He bought a quarter and he paid $3 million for that quarter. And you might think, that's crazy, that's stupid. Who would spend $6 million on 26 cents? He sold his penny for $4.5 million and then he sold his quarter for $4.5 million. I know it sounds crazy. It doesn't seem to make sense. But everything material, everything tangible, everything fungible can go away. But what about heavenly riches? What are they and how do you even know that they exist? Heavenly riches include a blameless life, an enduring relationship of love, forgiveness of sin, wisdom, knowing and doing the will of God. That is understanding the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the significance of life and understanding that when Jesus said, I've come, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is pointing out that there's certain kinds of riches that are secure and certain kinds of riches that are insecure. And so in verse 21, look what Jesus says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to invite you to look at that text again and look at it carefully. Jesus doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be, but rather where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. I want you to think about that long and hard. What he's basically saying is where you place what you think is valuable, that's where your heart will go. If you put your treasure in heaven, your heart will follow you to heaven. It doesn't make sense. It absolutely doesn't make sense for a person who doesn't believe in heaven to place their treasure there. You've heard me say at my my own mother's funeral, at my mother's funeral, I said, if you don't believe in heaven, if you don't think about heaven, if you don't think a lot about heaven, the chances are you're not going there. But where you place your treasure... Imagine that your treasure is your right relationship with God through Christ. Imagine your treasure is the grace and the mercy that you've received through the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life. Imagine that your treasure lies in the love that you have for your husband or for your wife or for your children or your grandchildren. That the people you care about. I have children who live here and I have grandchildren who live here and I have children who live elsewhere and grandchildren who who live elsewhere. And when my grandchildren leave, my heart goes with them. Your heart follows your treasure. Your treasure doesn't follow your heart. So how do you make deposits? How do you make deposits into this place? How do you place your treasure in heaven? And the reality becomes that with a right relationship with God, with cultivating a heart of generosity and grace, with giving comes a way of transforming your character and then your character will follow you into heaven. If you only value the things of this earth, then you'll have little interest in the next world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the apostle Paul invites his reader He says, quote, let every one of us lay by and store. In the original language, it means accumulate treasure. It's the things that we think are valuable. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says, Children ought not to lay up for their parents or treasure up for parents. In the Bible, children don't plan for their parents' future. Parents plan for their children's future. Because parents treasure their children. Now, I know some of you don't want to be a burden on your children, but I plan to be exactly that. And I've already told them. Yeah. You're worried about me being a burden? Start worrying right at this very moment. Hey, I'm not going to ask you for everything. All I want is one month for every one year that I gave you. If you stayed with me 18 years, you owe me 18 months. And if you come back and you live with me in my basement, you owe me one month for every year you live in my basement. That's my 401k, by the way. (laughs) The Bible speaks of a rich man's mistake and a fool's blunder. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. In James chapter 5, verse 3, it says, that we can lay up for that which is going to last or we can put aside for that which won't last. In Luke chapter 12, verse 21, it speaks of the foolish man who laid up treasures for himself and then he was taken. The Bible speaks of a kind of hoarding that results in God's punishment and judgment and he talks about those people who reject Christ and reject the gospel and reject love and reject mercy. What they're doing instead of hoarding love and grace and mercy, they're hoarding judgment and God is going to Make payment at some future point. What does the future hold? For those who have invested in eternity, life and love. And for those who have invested only in this life, they have stored up or treasured judgment. The Bible says that this world's going to pass away. The more wealth you acquire, the more treasures you store up, the larger your house, the bigger your bank account. All of these things make it difficult to die. I wish someone would have told me 30 years ago, you're going to spend the first half of your life getting stuff. And you're going to spend the last half of your life trying to get rid of it. Do yourself a favor. Cut out the middleman. But Jesus isn't suggesting or implying that this world is unimportant or that our lives are unimportant. That is not what Jesus is saying, but rather that the real importance of our existence here and now is the importance as it leads to the existence in eternity. Our motives and our most cherished possessions cannot be separated according to Jesus. Jesus isn't condemning saving money. He isn't even condemning a sensible retirement plan. He isn't condemning a provision for the future. Jesus is condemning covetousness. That means having enough of what you already have enough of. Materialism and hoarding and trusting in riches rather than trusting in God. Only a foolish person, here's what Jesus is basically saying, only a foolish person longs For what can never last. And so in verse 22. Jesus gives us a way of thinking about it. The single eye. He says, I I want you to think about this. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now the passage sounds complicated. But it's really rather simple. When you understand the language. And you understand the culture. And you understand the context. In the ancient world, people in that world believed that your eye 
was the window to your soul. Have you ever heard that expression, that your eyes are the windows into your soul? Jesus is basically saying, the eye is the window where light enters the body. The illustration, of course, is a house. In a house, if the windows are dirty or smeared or stained, light has problems getting in. Now, we live in a culture and a society where you regulate the light that comes into your house. Most of you have drapes, you have blinds, you have curtains. You try to figure out a way to keep the light out. Jesus is using the human eye to draw our attention to the subject, not of physical vision, but of spiritual vision. The amount of light that's available to your soul depends on the health of your eye or your vision. Jesus is in effect asking, what is the condition of your spiritual eyesight? How do you see things? How do you see people? How you see things and how you see people will depend upon your vision. How you see things becomes a metaphor for how you think about things or the process of thought that you employ. So if you have an evil eye, that means your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And so who is the person with the evil eye? It's the person who pursues wealth and riches in this sense. Proverbs 28, 22. It says, a man with an evil eye hastens or runs after riches and does not consider the poverty that will come upon him, unquote. When you read that passage, and if you don't understand the context, you might be misled, at least in this sense. For those people who are just simply looking to accumulate wealth, who never consider their life and their loved ones and this world, And the next world, they wind up impoverished. Jesus actually gives a story about that in Luke chapter 16 where he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Where a rich man has an abundance of wealth and Lazarus has nothing and both of them die. And one of them winds up in the place of the unrighteous dead. And one of them winds up in the place of the righteous dead. Lazarus doesn't go to the place of the righteous dead because he's poor. And and the rich man doesn't go to the place of the unrighteous dead because he's rich. Jesus invites us to consider things from a spiritual standpoint. Jesus is in effect saying... There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing like generosity to give you a clear vision, a healing vision, not only of things but of people. There's nothing like selfishness and there's nothing like greed and there's nothing like excessive personal consumption and self-absorption to distort your ability to see things, and people. And of course, the classic example is the very famous story of a Christmas carol in Ebenezer Scrooge. Each one of you watch it every year, either in, in cartoon form or movie form. You've seen it at some point. The story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who has so accumulated wealth that he's alienated, antagonized everybody else. He can't live with anyone because he's so selfish And pretty soon he can't even live with himself. How do you see others? Can fear and prejudice blind our eyes or distort our vision? Prejudice prevents clear thinking and logical judgment. It blinds us to the facts and the significance of facts. Jealousy perverts and clouds our vision and our judgment, and self-conceit blinds us, not just simply to the condition of other people, but more treacherously, it blinds us to how we really are. The only thing that we're able to see is our own imagined or exaggerated virtue. 
So what are the dangers of dark vision? You can't live with people. And they can't live with you. If you're a person who envies another's success, if you begrudge another person's happiness, if you're a person who can gaze at another person's need and shut out your heart, if you're a person who bears a grudge of bitterness and anger and resentment, the grudge isn't content to stay small inside of you. It will grow like a cancer like a tumor. It will crowd out joy and it will crowd out peace and it will consume contentment so that you're nothing but a bitter and an angry person and you become impossible to live with. No one wants to live with a person who lives under this constant cloud of darkness Nobody likes mean people. And everybody despises a miser. And love covers a multitude of sins. But greed and selfishness make whatever noble virtues a person may possess evaporate right before your eyes. People love the generous. Robin Hood may have been a felon, but he had a loyal following. The sheriff of Nottingham may have been on the right side of the law, but everyone hated him because he was mean. People with a dark vision, people who don't have a healthy eye, cannot live with God either. They can't live with themselves. They can't live with others. They can't live with God. And do you want to know the biggest reason why they can't live with God? I'm going to ask you just the simplest question you've ever been asked in your life. Who is more generous than God? No one. No one. No one is more generous than our Lord. No one is more generous in his capacity to give. No one is more bountiful in Jesus. No one gives more mercy. No one gives more grace. No one gives more love. No one is more open-handed. No one, no one, no one can outgive God. And so how difficult is it for the generous to find fellowship with the stingy? Barclay writes, quote, there can be no fellowship between God, whose heart is afire with love, and the man whose heart is frozen with meanness, unquote. The dark eye sees only darkness. The clear eye, the generous eye, sees what God sees in the way that God sees it. And so the generous eye, the clear eye, begins to understand that there's a difference between things and people. And you begin to understand that you must love people and use things, not use people and love things. So the good eye belongs to the person whose motives are pure, who have a singular desire to represent God's interest. And guess what? Jesus is going to get to that. He's, people are going to begin to understand that that means that you have to now begin to understand what God's interests are and Christ's interests are. And you will then begin to accept Christ's teachings. And who has the bad eye or the blind eye? This is the one who wants to hold on to the treasures of this earth, but they still long for the treasures in the next life. They might say, look, I want, I want it all here. And I want it all there. William MacDonald writes, quote, he doesn't want to let go of his earthly treasures, yet he wants treasures in heaven too. The teachings of Jesus seem impractical. They seem impossible. He lacks clear guidance since he's full of darkness, unquote. 
And that's what happens to the person who looks at the Bible and who looks at what Jesus says and, 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 and who says, this can't be true. I can't believe this. I can't accept this. Jesus speaks of two treasures, two eyes, which become two hearts, which look to two masters. Now we begin to add it up and we begin to understand. In verse 24, look what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he's going to be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a, is a Hebrew word, which came to mean material possessions. The word did not start off life that way. It didn't start off as a bad word. It came from a root word, which meant to be entrusted with something. It came to mean not just something entrusted, but the place of trust. So Mammon took on the characteristics and the attributes of a deity, of an idol. And by the way, an idol is anything that replaces your loyalties and affections and obligations that are owed to God. Nancy Piercy um, speaks of idols as God substitutes. So an idol is anything that you substitute for what God is supposed to give you. It is God who gives you life. It's God who gives you love. It's God who gives you contentment. It's God who gives you grace and mercy, forgiveness and hope, eternal life. And if you come to look to something else to provide that for you, you begin to take God from his rightful place and you replace it with an idol. Material things, according to the Bible, are given by God to people in trust or stewardship. The wealth that you've been given to you by God in trust is to be given to you to glorify him and to expand the kingdom of God. The person who trusts or counts on money or material goods and services for the power that it supplies begins to define their life in terms of the absence or the presence of that power or that provision. For some people, they define God as that power which a person trusts. There is no such thing as an atheist. Everyone believes in some sort of God who provides power for them to function in the very real world in which they live. It may be the God of their own brain. It may be the God of their own cunning. It may be the God of their own imagination. But it is a God nonetheless. And so Jesus speaks of mammon, materialism, as if it has all of the attributes of a living, breathing thing. I want you to think about what you're reading. Two treasures, two eyes, two masters are under discussion. And why does Jesus bring up this point? Because he understands that you will either have love and loyalty to one or you will despise and hate the other because the person who has two masters, particularly if the two masters are bidding them to do two different things, one master says, walk away from God, walk away from the church, walk away from the Bible, walk away from salvation, walk away from the vision that the Bible gives to you about heaven. Go away. One voice says, look out for others. And another voice says, look out for yourself. One master invites you to indulge yourself. And the other master invites you to sacrifice. One master says, you should get what you deserve. And another says, I'll give you everything that you need. I'll give you everything that you need. John Stott says, 
Quote, Jesus now explains the first choice between two treasures, where we lay them up, two visions, where we fix our eyes. There still lies the still more basic choice between two masters. Who are we going to serve? Jesus invites us to make a choice between two treasures, two visions, two masters, two treasures, one on the earth, the other in heaven, two visions, one clouded, one clear, two masters, one loyal and loving, the other despised and hated. Barclay rightly writes, quote, no one can be a slave to two owners, unquote. By the way, he's exactly right. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, a slave had no civil rights. A slave had no personal rights. A slave was a tool to be used by the master. In the ancient world, a slave was exactly the same in our culture and society. If your neighbor comes to you and says, I want to borrow your lawnmower. And you would use it to mow the lawn and then you would give it back to the owner. You can have two jobs. You can even have two employers. But you can't have two masters. Singular ownership and full-time service is the essence of slavery. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Each and every one of us is a slave to someone. And you might think, I'm not a slave to anyone. Yes, you are to yourself. You're someone. We will put God first, or we won't. Later, Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You will put God first or you won't. You will accept the rule of Christ or you won't. You will live for temporary pleasure or eternal things. You will live for the material or the spiritual. You will accept God's claim on your life or you won't. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Less than 24 hours ago, when the earthquake hit just 50 miles north of Kathmandu, in that valley in Nepal, I have friends and we've planted churches there through Gospel for Asia. Two and a half million people live on this strip of land And within six minutes, 2,000 people were dead. They woke up that morning, and they lived their life, and they had their chai, and they visited with their family. And then suddenly, without warning, they passed into eternity. There are blessings and benefits for those who seek first the kingdom of God, who have a vision For the future. When Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor, and blessed are those who seek God, the word blessed, remember I told you, it means, oh, how happy, but it means something way more than that. It means the power to provide for you exactly what God wants you to have. It's a provision of righteousness and freedom from anxiety and joy. And so we close and we ask and we answer yet another question. What should be our attitude towards wealth? J.H. Jowett wrote, the real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if suddenly we lost everything. And if suddenly you lost everything, what would you still have? 
Would you still have grace? Would you still have love? Would you still have mercy? Would you still have eternal life? Would you have everything? Would you have everything? Would you have everything that you're needed in order to finish what God has for you here and go where what God has for you there? So number one, our healthy attitude should include the idea and the understanding that it's the Lord God who possesses all things. In Psalm 24, 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who live in it. In Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, all of the wild beasts of the field. They are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Because the world is mine. And all of its fullness, unquote. When God says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because guess what? There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that you could possibly give God that he doesn't already own. In the New Testament, Jesus says that it's the master who gives the talents to the servants in Matthew 25, 15. Oh, we can buy and we can sell. We can make things. We can rearrange metal. We can fabricate. We can exchange for goods and services. But we can't really create in the ultimate sense of the word where God takes absolutely nothing and makes something. Someone might argue with me and say, well, I have an idea and that was nothing. And then it became something. And then I would respond with, who made your brain? Who gave you a mind to think with? Guess what? You're left with one of two things. God gave you a brain and he gave you a mind to think with or not. That you have something or you have nothing. We might say that this is mine and it's my decision to do with it as I please. And it is true that God entrusts you with things and gives you the wisdom and the discernment of how to give or retain those things. The story is told of a, of a little girl from the big city and she was visiting the countryside and she saw some flowers growing and she said, do you think God would mind if I picked some of his flowers? That's the right attitude. This little girl understood what most of us don't comprehend. We understand that God owns everything. Number two, we love people and we use things, not the other way around. People are always more important than things. And if we have to make money, and we have to make money, and if we have to acquire fortunes, and some of us do, it's to take care of our family. It's to advance the kingdom of God. But when we forget the principle, it will always bring disaster. In 1833, there were 84,000 children working the mills from 5 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night in England. The cotton mill industry was driven by child labor until the Christians gathered together and said, this is wrong. Today, there are children in South America and Indonesia and Vietnam and other parts of the world who are exploited. But we love cheap clothes and we love cheap toys and we love cheap electronic devices. But whenever... Whenever people are treated like machines, whenever people are treated as a way to get things, then we have a real problem. And we're inviting God's judgment. You know, some people believe that they can buy their way out of any problem. But God makes it abundantly clear that that's not true. For the Christian, wealth is never a weapon. It's always a tool. Wealth is not a weapon that we use to hurt each other. It's a tool that we use to minister to one another. You know, when I was preparing this message, I remembered back on a book that I had read many, many years ago. The book was entitled The Rest of Success. It's by Dennis Hack. And there's a particular paragraph in that book that I want to close with. 
He writes, I think all Christians should regularly visit the city dump. Have a quiet time there. Spend time in the scriptures and in prayer. Preferably with your windows down. And as you do so, remind yourself of everything that's around you. In huge, rotting piles is the accumulated stuff of which some have lived for and perhaps even died for. By God's grace, may we be saved from ash heap lives. Unquote. You'll never have to worry about that if you understand what treasure really is. If you allow God to let you see people the way he sees them. Because guess what that will do? You'll begin to see God the way that he sees you. And if for whatever reason you forget everything that I've said in this study, when you get home, just remember this. Go home, stick your head in the trash, and take a great big hit. And then ask yourself this question. What matters? What's important? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that if for some reason everything, everything, everything that we have disappeared, that the most important thing that we possess will become abundantly clear. No wonder we can understand what the New Testament says, that to be found in Christ is to be found with everything that we need. There's hope. There's love. There's mercy. There's grace. There's contentment. There's the absence of fear and the presence of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.